Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode, a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. I'm very excited to welcome Teddy Deef to the show today. Uh, Teddy is currently the creative director at Square Enix Montreal. Uh, he's a writer and a game designer. He worked on Hyperlight Drifter and Fitzpackerton. It's one of the more uh, obscure, but still wonderful ones. Um, obviously, he used to host the uh, the Playscape LA podcast on the Idle Thumbs Network, which is uh, clearly a big influence on this show and, and you know, many others, I'm sure. Um, and he, he founded and hosts the, the Square Bowl every year, which is a, a live stream for, for charity of uh, a bunch of friends playing Final Fantasy games and, and RPGs in general. He co-founded that actually with um, Adriel Wallach, who was a guest on the show ages ago, episode 36, I think. But she's amazing. So, you know, do dig back into the archives. And I always do encourage this, you know, if, if this is your your first episode, please do dig back. I'm sure you'll find plenty to enjoy. There's been some uh, amazing guests. I've been very lucky to speak to some really brilliant people. And today is no exception. It was an absolute delight to chat with uh, with Teddy. It was brilliant. And I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Episode 99. Oh, they grow up so fast. Uh, honestly, I can't quite believe it's episode 100 next week. Um, brilliant guests, by the way. No spoilers. Um, it's been uh, like I'm. I'm so. I feel so lucky to have done this show. You know, I've spoken to so many amazing people. It's. Uh, it's all gone by. It's all gone by so quickly. Um, I mean, it's not going anywhere. Uh, I don't think. <laughs> um, I mean, this is very much like this is a. This show is a, is a labor of love. Um, I have various other jobs and freelance work that I'm I'm always working on in the background so but I always do like I always try and make the time to make sure it's as good as it possibly can be so if you do enjoy it please do share it around tell a friend all that good stuff um last week for instance I spoke with uh, Christine Love who was wonderful uh, and that episode got got a lot of love on Twitter I was I was delighted there was loads of retweets and likes and it had such a massive impact on the the, the number of downloads and stuff so it, that stuff really does help as does rating and review on iTunes and all that. So please do that. It's uh, it's massively appreciated. If you really like the show, then there's a Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. If you have the money and the inclination, all donations are very gratefully received and go back into making the show as good as it possibly can be. As always, if you'd like to get in touch, you can. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at checkpointshow on Twitter or it's checkpointspodcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. I'm never going to stop doing that joke. I mean, I don't even know if you can call it a joke, um, but I'm never going to stop doing it. It's just, I mean, a lot of this intro is kind of uh, kind of rote now. I, I apologize. I'm sure most people skip over it. Uh, if you don't skip over it, let me know. <laughs> I'll try and make it more entertaining. Um, okay, so we've done done the intro, done a bit about supporting the show, done a little bit about getting in touch. That's, that's done. That's a, a successful introduction section. <laughs> okay, um, I'll be back as always next week with a new episode and a new guest. Episode 100. Uh, but for now, thanks for downloading. Please subscribe, rate and review, blah, blah, blah. Let's get on with the show, shall we? 
Okay, well let's do uh, let's do a formal introduction for the sake of ceremony. So Teddy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. If you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Oh, sure. Uh, hello, I'm Teddy Deef. I'm a, a game designer, a writer, and creative director. So I'm currently a creative director at Square Enix in Montreal. Um, but my my backstory includes. Um, an academic life at USC doing games narrative research, uh, game design for Disney, game design for Microsoft, uh, and several years of independent development uh, in which I made a bunch of games that you've not heard of and then one that perhaps you have called Hyperlight Drifter, which is a um, Zelda-like, fast, pixelated um, action RPG. It's one of the games of last year, Teddy. I actually spoke to, I spoke to Alex uh, in December, I think. Um, oh, really? uh, about it yeah but, because like I, all of the shows of december last year i tried to kind of find people who made games that were like some of my favorite games that came out mm. that year so it's alex uh, who else i speak to zach gage for uh really okay. Chess, cause it was amazing um anyway this is uh this is all by the by teddy i absolutely love your name you, do you feel <laughs> do you feel blessed by your name because i've got a bit of an odd name too and i really do appreciate my my name is it's relatively unique do you have a good relationship with your name uh wow what a question i i have a complicated relationship with my name because it's both um not entirely my legal name and also like i i remember getting a comp i've gotten compliments on my name before like i remember in the first time i got one in high school someone was like you have such a great name you're like a story character it's like, really oh. enjoyable to say like it's a really <laughs> just the sound of it is really nice I had this feeling uh, when I was independent sort of during the development of Hyperlight Drifter where I was feeling, uh, I don't know, it's probably just imposter syndrome is the easiest way to put it. Um, and I felt like I'm not, like, I don't have a voice, I don't have, like, a style. Um, all these friends of mine who do these, this amazing work also have these handles. It's, like, part of being a, a internet citizen. Yeah. And, like, my handle is just my name. And, like, how boring. And I went through this process um, of getting over involved with any little thing like this and, and brainstormed and tried to like get to the core of me and find a, a username that would speak to me much as like probably anyone does when they're picking like a, an AOL name or whatever the more modern comparison is. Um, and eventually I settled on like just investing in my own name, so to speak. I was yeah. like, I can't find anything that feels normal. So let's stick with this. But that's one of the perks though. Like certainly for me, like almost all of my, various handles on the internet have always just been my name because nobody else has my name i think there's there's a couple mm. now through through social media I've, I've discovered like three or four other declan denines but otherwise you know i can get i can get all the twitter handles you know there's going to be in the yeah. kind of future scarcity of uh, internet handles i'll be hot property <laughs> it's <laughs> it's great it's a it's an internet privilege and sometimes a real life privilege because uh, even for me I, I come upon teddies pretty rarely particularly in games yeah um so that's that's really ha handy. Also, sometimes bad because I'm already bad with names. So having a name that's maybe easier to remember just puts me at a further disadvantage <laughs> when trying to keep up with everyone else. Oh, amazing! Um, so so you're currently you're, you're the creative director at Square Enix Montreal. Now, what mm -hmm. what is that? What what is your what does that entail? Because that's that's an incredibly broad uh, role you could be doing there. Yeah, I mean it's. It, um, I have found that, at least in the context of the studio, which I'll um, describe, uh, 
it is much like my experience with with film directors, where you sort of pick your focus because it's okay. a, a job of it's a job of leading and a job of delegation, right? So um, you find like the one or two things you're going to sink your hands into and remain hands on, and then uh, find other people to do other things. So, for example, in the context of film, there are actors directors who spend a lot of time with actors, and they just want to be they're they're in front of the camera, out on the set, working with them. And then there are more like cinematic directors who like to be behind the camera, like to be focused on the shot and sitting right next to the cinematographer. Yeah. And they, they cast actors who can sort of direct themselves, so to speak, So, um, to make that comparison. So more specifically, um, Square Enix Montreal is part of Square Enix, which is a much larger Japanese company and, and a company that I loved as a child. Um, but we're 40. We're very small as uh, game studios with a name like that go. Yeah. Um, and my team right now is seven, so it's part of the um, the premise under which I left independent work, um, or at least left full-time independent work to come here, was that I could be working on a familiar team size, familiar sort of dynamic. Um, so does it like to kind of push the, the film analogy further? Would, it, would you sort of see it as a kind of a, like a Fox searchlight or something, like a, a sort of sub-studio within a bigger studio, like... To, to make kind of relatively smaller things. Yeah, that would be something I would aspire to that sort of thing. Searchlight or focus features or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And is it good? Because you've, you've not been there too long, have you? I've been there a year, um, which is, is not too long. Uh, it is great. It's um, more similar than I was expecting, actually, um, to what I'm used to. Um, I, I think uh, a lot of a lot of the... Maybe this is true of anyone who's doing work, but there is a process of um, getting into a role on a team, getting into a project that is learning what to ignore. Yeah. And so I, th I think that I was uh, exposed to a lot of new-ish things coming in um, and then gradually over the course of my first year have learned all of the things that I can and should ignore uh, in order to serve best my team and my game, which is really um, why I exist in the in the studio. And are you allowed to talk about whatever you might be working on, or is that all secret still? Um, uh, allowed is a relative word, but I'm going to go ahead and say no. We're not announced. Let's, okay, let's okay. Go with that. That's yeah. fine, that's fine. Uh, this isn't a show about, about upcoming projects, Teddy. This is a, a deep dive into your, into your past. So if you can remember, what was your very first experience of a video game? Oh, um... Uh, earliest memories that are either my own or from from home videos would be uh, my <laughs> my NES, my Nintendo uh, that I got. So I would have been five, I think, five or six. Um, and I have some pretty potent memories of playing with my little brother, uh, which by and large meant me playing while he watched, yeah. which maybe is just like a little, maybe that's common for big brother, little brother. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. you leave them with the extra controller and be like, hey, definitely play and you're controlling the enemies. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was there was this one co-op game we played a ton, which was uh, Chippendales Rescue Rangers for the NES. Okay. Which has some like poisonously catchy music um, and uh, an incredible gotcha because um, uh, at a certain point I played with a game genie which was like a, a physical tool that allowed you to use cheat codes. Yeah. Because um, in the NES era, like there were some codes that were put into games, like the famous Konami code. Um, and then there were like these sort of, of hacks that could be done through this thing called the Game Genie. Um, and I remember with Chippendale's Rescue Rangers that uh, 
there was an invincibility code, which was great because it was a brutally hard game and none of those games had save files. So you had to beat it in one go if you wanted to see the whole thing. And so I used that code because if you give me an advantage, I guess I'll just take it. So I, I took the invincibility. Um, and there is one environmental hazard in a, in a late level, like an hour into the game, as far as I can remember, that will infinitely stun you and keep you stuck there forever as like a punishment for cheating. They <laughs> build that into the game. Not intentionally, but there's it's like a it's this axe that goes back and forth, and so a, a dynamic of being invincible is that there's a stun in the game if you get hit, um, and the stun lasts exactly as long as it takes the axe to hit you again. So if you get hit by it once, it's meant to kill you, but since it doesn't, you're just trapped there forever. So if you miss that one jump after an hour of play, you get you get deeply punished. That's one of those weird things, though, because because you were a kid, like I can imagine that's not something like oh does this work you know nowadays you just look that up and figure out oh that's like i'm stuck in an endless loop here i imagine as a kid you could have spent hours on that going there must be this is this must be a way of doing this this is insane it was pretty immediately uh futile but it is really funny um to think about how the dialogue has changed you know because the, the best thing i can think of that reminds me of is like speed running and communities that really get into the depths of the games and find those things because i'm sure the developers had no concept that most of their game would be beatable with an invincibility <laughs> code, except for that trap. Oh, that's amazing! And and whereabouts in the in the world is this? Um, oh, I grew up in Washington D.C. in the U.S. And and how did this sort of Nintendo come into your life? Was this? Uh, I mean, it seems to be the more Americans I speak to, it seems to be everybody was just given a Nintendo at some point in their youth, like it was a, a government program or something. But <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming that like your parents would have got it for you. But was it something you were kind of longing for and asking for? Or it was just like, cool, here's a new toy for us to play with. I I don't remember as well. I um, you know, I don't think it was a government program. Our country isn't known for those, <laughs> uh, but. Uh, I do, I do remember that, yeah, I was given it as a birthday gift, um, which is maybe not universally common, but was certainly a privilege. Um, I remember my Super Nintendo being the one that I was like desperate for. So Nintendo may have, I don't know. I don't know if a Nintendo was just pushed upon me or like given as on a whim and yeah. uh, thus setting me on a course for my life or, <laughs> or whether I had any agency in that. And was it just you and, and your brother? Like, did your parents have any interest in games at all? No, not that I can remember. Um, I think my, I don't remember my mom really engaging at all. And my dad mostly engaged in like a uh, protective capacity. Like I have memories later of like his concern over my time spent in Final Fantasy VII, um, <laughs> his concern over my StarCraft campaigns, and um, his concern over my playing Road Rash and it being a game about violence against the police. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, such uh uh, such sort of modest concerns in you know, looking back <laughs> in history um so like presumably then the, this sort of first nintendo like had a, a big impact on you like you were seeking out the the latest consoles like did you did you feel that you were kind of like oh this is for me this this is my medium like quite early on or was it just kind of gradually whatever these are the new things to get this is what you do um it was certainly the my strongest hobby. Like I, I wasn't a huge film buff as a child. I wasn't a big comics reader. I hardly ever watched or even had access to anime. Uh, just thinking about the things a lot of my peers are into. So yeah, like 
it was definitely the thing that I was a fan of. That and music, I think, were things I locked onto for most of my life right away. Now, whether those were my mediums in terms of creative outlet was not something I thought about for many, many years. Yeah. But, but you, you were in, so, so you, you got the this Super Nintendo. Like, are there any kind of standout games from this period of your life that you remember being particularly impactful? Hmm. Um, if I'm thinking about, like... Well, if I'm thinking in retrospect, like there are there are two angles to this, right? One is yeah. just the the memories as a player, and a lot of that I think revolved around the Nintendo hype machine. Like I was a subscriber to Nintendo Power magazine. Um, all the spines of the magazines created like an image over the course of the year, so it uh, influenced you to stay subscribed. Um, and that's where like the cheat codes would come in. There was this incredible hype for. Um, I remember Donkey Kong Country for the Super Nintendo and Star Fox 64 for the Nintendo 64 both had VHS tapes that Nintendo mailed to you, um, which is like an unbelievable investment. I don't know why they did that, but this actually this uh, is these like incredible videos you can still find on YouTube. This came up with with Alex as well. This was his kind of introduction to game design was the the VHS video of Donkey Kong Country because oh, really? that was the first time you'd actually seen like oh hang on. This is these are people that are making these things. This is amazing because I think that's something that's yeah. still relatively rare for people, like the kind of the knowledge of who goes into making games. Yeah, I mean it's it's funny. Like I remember the Star Fox sixty four video, which was much later, and that was certainly just an ad, but um, it did expose these three characters who were meant to represent the uh, Nintendo, Sega, and Sony where uh, Sega and Sony were the villains in this particular video, and Nintendo was the cool guy. Um, that but they were all represented. Really? That, that was a thing. Oh, That's it's insane. amazing. Um, the, the short of it, the plot of this video, is that um, there is this new secret game at Nintendo headquarters, and um, a Nintendo pilot gets kidnapped by goons uh, from Sony and Sega. And they um, try to get him to talk and reveal the secrets about Star Fox 64 by torturing a doll of Mario. <laughs> so, so they like hook That's Mario up, up to up an electric chair. Oh, oh, absolutely! And they're just so goonish. It's like, it's it's gross actually in retrospect, but it's so <laughs> the whole thing is so goofy. There's this, you know, he's like, fine, like you want to know what we've got coming? Here it is, and he talks about all the features of star fox 64 and then their <laughs> minds are blown and then he's like oh you think that's it like and then he's like boom rumble pack which was like the first instance of, of rumble uh, or vibration in a controller and that was like ah the whole thing is i highly recommend everyone I'm youtube definitely gonna it. seek that out so but were you kind of because of your console history were you kind of uh, a nintendo kid like this is this is my team so to speak um, I was never like a loyalist, so to speak. My, um, uh, I had a, I, I was very lucky. I had a Genesis as well, a Sega Genesis, um, which would have been around the time of, I guess, the Super Nintendo. Um, although, funny that um, my consoles ended up also representing geographic locations for me because my parents were divorced and my Sega was at my dad's and my Nintendo was at my mom's. Um, so that Weirdly, I, like, that kind of fits, and I can't articulate why. Uh, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, like Sega is like the Sega father. is the dad's console, and Nintendo is the mom's console. Yeah, I'm trying to connect that to the Sega does what Nintendo don't slogan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like if mom <laughs> won't let you ask dad. Um, 
so yeah, I have this history of like um, my console, you know, my consoles being very limited in that regard. Um, and then when I got a PlayStation, I, I was so attached to it because I was getting into RPGs, which is what ended up being like my real love that um, I would start carrying that. Like I, I borrowed a duffel bag from my dad and it became my PlayStation bag and I just always brought it back and forth every weekend so that I didn't have to be separated from it. That's quite poetic. That's, that's like a, that's a, a, a kind of coming of age story in and of itself. You have these two kind of uh, dichotomies of a brand, the Sega versus Nintendo at the appearance house. And you're like, no, I'm, I'm a grown up now. I have my own <laughs> PlayStation, which I'll carry between the two. So the closest thing I had to a briefcase. Yeah, that's amazing. So, so you said you started getting into RPGs. Was that you know off the back of the PlayStation, or had you already kind of dabbled with that on the Sega and Nintendos? Uh, Super Nintendo. I had a lot of exposure to it through um, like oh, tons of my favorite games: uh, Secret of Mana, uh, Super Mario RPG, which was a Nintendo Square collaboration, mm-hmm. and. Um, Oh, and Earthbound, which also had a huge hype, a huge hype machine behind it. At least in the sense that a lot of people remember these smell stickers that Nintendo Power included with the ads. Oh, I don't remember uh, that. I don't, they were, I don't think that came over to the UK. Oh, they uh, strong memories. They had scratch and stiff sniff stickers, which was very in line with like this aesthetic that Earthbound had of being kind of rough around the edges and gross um you know like edgier yeah in in many ways than the sort of tri- typical fantasy offerings it's weird I, I, earthbound isn't i i wouldn't put earthbound in with that i don't know if it maybe maybe it just didn't get released over here i'm gonna look that up but that's mm. that's not one i always think when i think of like the japanese rpgs on the super nintendo it's always like chrono trigger and uh and secret of mana um, oh well i mean earthbound is uh I mean, you know, a lot of people attribute the the love of the community behind Undertale to to the Earthbound community. That's like the the one to one people draw is Earth, that Undertale is a game for Earthbound lovers. I don't think it ever came out in Europe. I think that's why. Oh, wow. I'm just looking at it now. Um, um, I mean, the the short of it is that it's a game. It's an RPG that's set in the real world. It's a Japanese person's perception of what commercial modern America was. So you play these children walking around and sort of these suburban American towns, like you can order pizza, um, you call you call home to save your game, um, you call dad to get an allowance, and he gives you, he deposits money into your account, you use ATMs, it's all very like contemporary. That's crazy, I have no knowledge of that game at all. Like I know the name, because I've just mm. heard people mention it, but now I'm ju- I just looked it up, and yeah, it never got released in Europe, so it's just the this big gap um, oh. in, in my memory. But Secret Mana was a big one though because you could do the the multiplayer. So did you ever get to play the kind of was it three? It was three player, wasn't it? You could use the multi tap. It, it was three. Um, I don't. I didn't play it three. I played it two. Um, and uh, funnily enough, I, I played with a good friend of mine in like the fifth grade, and we played all the way to the final palace, and then we rage quit um, because we'd been playing for weeks. I, I think um, to slowly get there. And by the time we got there, we encountered like a technical difficulty, which is that when you only play with two characters, the third is left up to a really bad AI oh, just no. to keep up with you and fight. And the level design of the final temple is very windy. It's this like zigzag back and forth, which just begs for the computer character to get <laughs> stuck or like in the wrong part of the maze. And it's just infuriating. And so you die a lot thanks to bad AI and, and the character being trapped. So... 
Um, I think for me, especially having gone back to it over and over in the last couple decades, uh, a lot of the Hyperlight Drifter development was to solve problems I had with that game. <laughs> so exercising childhood demons. Yeah. Um, so, so how was the kind of the the introduction of the PlayStation into your life? Like, was that like in terms of this story where you're going back and forth to your parents? Like, did you feel like, oh, this is this is mine now, as opposed to this is like a family thing that we've got together? Hmm. Um, I, this is so like the, one of the strongest memories I have with my, my PlayStation was like, it was very much this like, uh, responsibility, like carrying this thing around. I I remember, uh, vividly that my, my dad was so worried about this that I was like, can I please take the PlayStation back to mom's? Because, um, he always wanted to make sure he had kind of a, a life for us too. He didn't want us yeah. to feel like we were being pulled away from our lives uh, when we spent time with him. Was it in the and same so, city? So or, um, or was this quite a distance between the two? Uh, significant, but not huge. So like, okay. he usually ended up being like 30 to 45 minutes away, depending on the time of my childhood. So okay, that's fine. Not down the street for sure, but not, you know, not an airplane. Yeah. Um, but so I just remember having to have that responsibility of like, I know I really want to take this with me, but also it will hurt him if I forget it or if I don't bring it back. So this uh, kind of deep point in my life. It was also, I think, like a motivation for me to get a little healthier because I was like a pretty unhealthy, overweight kid. And um, my dad was always like subtly trying to to help my siblings and I by having us go on walks. He was like, hey, hey, let's go for a walk. The exercise is good for you. And uh, a moment I'll never forget is like I knew and he knew that I was like getting healthier. I was like I've been losing a lot of weight and I was um, doing some exercise on my own. And so I remember him coming down to the basement where I was playing Final Fantasy VII and he was like, hey, we're going to go for a walk. Like, you come on along. And I was like, I don't need to go for a walk. <laughs> it's like, I like the the cinematic part of my head just imagines us kind of knowingly nodding to each other. But <laughs> for whatever reason, uh, I was able to take my own fate into my hands and and keep playing the game. And, and what like what prompted that? Like the the kind of the fitness kick is that just like a a level of self awareness the age you're at, or was it any particular reason? Um. Oh gosh! Because uh, you were saying that maybe the PlayStation made you sort of work out more. Um, I mean, I think that was part of a motivation. I wouldn't attribute it wholesale, but um, you know, s- certainly, like I, it took me a long time to develop habits uh, that were healthy. Having spent a lot of time just just playing games, and yeah. then um, thankfully, like I put uh, an absurd amount of attention into like fitness. I was a trainer in college. I got like very deep into health and fitness. Um, which has helped me a great deal now that I do what I do um, and work as much as I do because I can, I know all the ways to stay healthy with relatively minimal amount of time available to, yeah. to exercise and things like that. Do you, is that like, that, that's interesting. There hasn't really been much chat of, of health on the show before. Mm. But like in terms of, you know, someone who clearly loves video games and, and, and has kind of been a passion throughout your life, did you did you kind of immediately gamify exercise? Like, was it, was that part of the, the motivation in that you could kind of, you could build a kind of system of, of I get better, I level up, I get fitter, I do this, and then I get that much XP, so to speak. No one's ever said that to me. And it's so true. It's such an RPG. Um, yeah. 
like especially in the context of like um people trying to lose weight and then my so I like I started running and I lost a tremendous amount of weight and then I was the super skinny kid and then I wanted to get stronger because I was at this um I was at this private all boys high school um where everyone played sports it was like a big jock school okay and I was I was not that but I certainly was surrounded by people who were fitter fitter more strapping young men than I was so um that is an aside to say like yeah like uh, the the weightlifting bodybuilding community is all about counting calories counting protein um yeah and you're, you're like measuring yeah yeah measuring <laughs> gains and like uh different modes of play like there's this concept of um building and cutting where you have to have these phases where you can't you can't gain muscle and lose fat at the same time so you have to do one or the other and like it is very, very gamified, and to this day, that's like internalized in me. I don't, I don't do it intensely anymore, but I, I'm always internally counting, counting protein. That's that's amazing. I'm interested. I'm, I'm obviously now. I'm fascinated by this this private boys' school. Um, like how <laughs> how did your in this kind of school of, of of jocks, so to speak? Like how did your your gaming habit fit in? Did you feel like it was like a little secret thing you keep to yourself, like, or did you have like a small group of friends that you played with? Um, I always ever had like the one best friend and that, and that cycled a bunch depending on my circumstances, uh, throughout, um, grade school and high school. But it was, yeah, it wasn't like the sort of thing where everyone on the, in the locker, in the hallway is talking about the latest game. Um, yeah. but most of my, like all of my friendships were forged around one of us going to the other's house, spending the night and playing video games. That was just all we did. So, so what are the the kind of the the standout games from the kind of PlayStation era for you? Um, that's all RPGs, I think. Um, Final Fantasy VII was the reason I, I managed to get a PlayStation. Um, Final Fantasy Tactics, Final Fantasy VIII, um, some games I loved but never actually finished, like Xenogears, um, and then I think. That's all the Final Fantasies. I just like locked in. Maybe I was used to being such a loyalist with Nintendo that when I went to PlayStation, I just became this <laughs> this uh, Square Enix or at the time SquareSoft loyalist. Where like I really didn't play other RPGs. Um, now I kind of regret it, but I I'm so deeply um, ingrained into like the SquareSoft model. And do do you think there's any particular reason? Like the, the is there like a rhythm to those games or something that kind of draws you in? Um, I I think that Final Fantasy VII was such an event. You know, it was the most expensive Absolutely. game, most expensive game ever made, as far as I know. Um, and I've read so many interviews about it uh, more recently about development, but that's that's a tangent. It's um, one of the the most commonly mentioned games on the show, like uh, as it should impact. be. Um, so and Final it, Fantasy Twelve, though I, I, this is a running theme. Final Fantasy Twelve, I think, is—I mean, it's not. I don't think it is the best Final Fantasy, and other people are totally free to have their own opinions. But well, what's the? There's a clear. running theme that people love. No, no, Final no, Fantasy no. It's it's my own bias. Is that I ask everybody, you know, what is your your favorite Final Fantasy? But the correct uh. answer is is Final Fantasy Twelve because I genuinely think it's like a, a, a masterpiece that kind of is relatively forgotten, certainly in comparison to like Final Fantasy Seven. But it's kind of unlikely uh, yeah. others, so wow bold um i'm 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 impressed by that bold statement um <laughs> uh no but i i think like for me it was probably just a a price thing as well like games 
Um, you know, people, uh, there's a lot of discussion, especially amongst indie developers, of what we can price our games at yeah. um, and what the perceived value is of games. Um, you know, and, and today, at least in U.S. dollars speaking, like a AAA game runs you 60 or $70, and uh, an indie game, you hit kind of a price ceiling at 20 So, like, Hyperlight Drifter was $20, and we knew almost factually that we couldn't go above that uh, because we were both an indie game and a pixel game, which comes with its own stigma. Um, but at the time, I mean, games were much, much more expensive if you yeah. consider price inflation, right? So probably over $100 for those Final Fantasy games. So it was no small thing to pick one. And it was just such a risk, especially without um, a very broad internet yet, to know if this was the right purchase. Um, so just, trying things, like I think I tried a Shadow Hearts game, but I never tried the dot .hack games because it's just so much money to invest in something you're not sure if it's going to be any good. And it's also one of those things where, like I'm sure as a kid I played a lot of games that, objectively were probably pretty bad but that was the game i got so that's what i'm playing now for the next six mm-hmm. months until i get another one you know yeah and did, and did you like just going back to the rpg thing because clearly this is a a big part of your love for games like has there ever been a, an rpg that you just bounced off that you that you didn't like do you know I, I'm, I'm just trying to think of like what what is it about that kind of gameplay loop that that you enjoy so much and if there's a way that could be broken um Maybe not as a child, but I was like uh, deeply betrayed by Final Fantasy XIII um, because there was something lost in the structure for me. Um, you know, like there was a lot of things about the battle system they were trying that was fascinating, but they lost like a feeling of of exploration. And it was this wildly linear game. Um, uh, and I think it was them trying to emulate a lot of the success of like Western AAA blockbusters that was yeah. maybe spearheaded by Naughty Dog and the Uncharted games and going like more cinematic and more um, tightly tightly controlled story, which um, like possibly I'm a I'm a fan of as a developer. But um, yeah, I just like I didn't I didn't feel like I had any control and it didn't feel the same. And I felt uh, ironically I felt betrayed by that and not by Final Fantasy VIII, which most people might might say they they're upset by. What about 15? Do you think that... I mean, I'm getting you into awkward territory by <laughs> asking you to... <laughs> no, sort of, uh, yeah, but, like, because I had the exact same thing with 13 and 15. Like, I just completely... I, I couldn't invest in 15. As, as beautiful and as charming as I found the characters and stuff, it just... As I was playing, I was like, I'm not doing anything here. I'm just I'm just pushing buttons. I know, in a reductive mm. sense, you could say that about most games, but I really... I felt like I wasn't making any choices at all. Yeah, I I don't know what that is because like, part of me would say, like I had a, a positive reaction to Final Fantasy 15. I I did not finish it. Um, I'm still like locked at 10 or 15 hours in, and it didn't capture me uh, narratively. But but I loved like the the chocobo riding. I loved the selfie system. I found it all fascinating. But I. I don't know if it's that I aged out of some of those more grindy systems. Um, that very or, well might be part of it, actually. Just I, I find myself less and less sort of drawn to drawn out experiences. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that that's, that's a huge thing, and I could talk about time and my the value I place on time forever. Um, but maybe that's just it. Is that like um, 
uh, that that sort of property needs to mature with me. You know, like uh, yeah. the, the best examples I can think of that are counterpoints is perhaps like Pokemon is a series that never grows up, that it's always like new, a new generation of kids always cycles through Pokemon and it's always accessible to that generation. Um, whereas something like the people would say maybe that the Harry Potter novels did age with its population, with its readership, that as you got through the series, they got more and more mature um, or darker at least. Yeah. Um, so my my hope is that the Final Fantasy games grow with me, and and a lot of that has to do with time investment. I mean, I have to say, like, uh, one of the reasons I love Hyperlight Drifter so much is is I think for that reason, like, it is it is kind of like the RPGs that I loved as a, as a kid, kind of aged appropriately to where I am now. Do you know, and it kind can of can I it, put you on the spot? Do you, like, what what do you think got to you there? How do you mean? What felt a, what what felt aged about it? And just like thematically, thematically, and I mentioned this with Alex as well. It was it was part of it was the way there was no um, language, like oh, there was language rather, but it was there was no English text, so to speak, and you mm. kind of had to decipher the world yourself, essentially, um, and that kind of that feeling of being in a real alien place and genuinely like exploring somewhere. It reminded me of playing games as a kid where. I wouldn't have the internet, so it would be like trying to figure things out just by like making little notes and being like, "Well, what does that mean?" Okay, oh right, I remember seeing that back in this place, so maybe that does this, do you know? And that that was a big part of why I love that mm-hmm. so much, and also because the the general kind of story and characters all felt alien as well. Like they weren't, it, it wasn't sort of tropish, you know. I didn't really know how it all fit together, and and that was part yeah. of the, the thrill of it. Yeah, I think that um, there. Yeah, no one on the team was really pushing for tropes. Um, I think possibly the biggest. Uh, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think um, like Sean, Alex, and myself were maybe the biggest RPG kids, RPG fans, and I think we all had our different reasons why we want weren't interested in hitting the usuals. Um, like Alex, in terms of the world that that he was trying to build, just didn't hit the same tone as a lot of the. Um, RPGs we played as kids and I'm sort of like a contemporary hound like I, I um, am more interested in things being uh, more along the lines of of, um, of Earthbound or just games that feel like they have these these other elements that feel more real to me than a lot of the tone of Final Fantasy although I love it and Secret of Mana as well yeah um, but there's I mean I think there's a lot in the design that felt uh adult to me in terms of again like valuing the player's time i think that's something that we laced into a lot of the decisions as we went oh absolutely that was a big part of it as well that i could i could finish it and not you know not spend a couple of weeks on it necessarily yeah no none of us wanted to make a grind game um like there there's certainly it provokes you a little bit to find secrets but um in terms of blocking players out like the biggest thing we did that perhaps blocked players out is, is difficulty, and even that we tried to whittle down from yeah. where it was. Um, but yeah, it was never meant to be a, like, go back, you have to spend five hours grinding if you really want to get through this. And also, like, not to turn this into a total hyperlight drifter loving, but, like, the the kind of, the, the, the actual sort of control and the, the, the gameplay, so to speak, of, of the character, it felt you could kind of dip in for a little bit, and you could have a satisfying experience just kind of you know um shooting about and fighting some guys and figuring out a little puzzle and that'll be fine that's okay rather than you know sitting through maybe 20 minutes of 
dialogue and then a battle and you haven't really gone anywhere yeah i think um as a game that is both very intense and has these big difficulty spikes and as a game that is not um intensely plot thick like uh, it's not a page turner um in terms of like there's not periodic cliffhangers or yeah. huge dramatic moments that that make you need to go to the next room um so in that sense like I think it kind of forced itself. Like that's something we just noticed about the game, and I don't know how intentional that was, but in early playtests, people would feel like we'd have them play for like 45 minutes, and then we'd do a Q and A with them, and they would say, you know, we'd ask them, "Would you play more of it? Do you like this game?" And they would be like, "I would, but I need a break. Like I think that was enough for me for this session." And I think that's something we just accepted about the intensity of the game. Is absolutely that not meant to be binged. So where did the, like your, your interest in making games, then where did that develop? Where, where did you first sort of have that thought? Um, late, honestly. I mean, for all the discussion we've had of childhood, like I, um, somehow I ended up being like very uh, nose down as a kid. I was a really good student uh, and sort of an achiever. And I went to a good college, a good university. And like... Um, it wasn't until after college for me, after university, where I got my first full-time job and kind of realized, like, oh, jobs are a lot of time. Like, this is going to, <laughs> well, you know, like, this is going to be the majority of my life. Absolutely. And I haven't really, I haven't really thought about career, uh, which was such a, I don't know how I got that far without doing that. Um, so what did you do at university then? What, what was your kind of theoretical goal? I... I studied what interested me, um, and I did my best at it, but um, I don't want to say I had no specific... Like, I didn't know that game development was a career, and it just didn't pop into my head, and when it did, um, I knew it wasn't a thing that was in uh, Washington, D.C. or in New York, where I was at university. It just wasn't huge there at the time, and so uh, my first job was in advertising, because that's what my father did, my first uh, full-time job, and... I sort of took after him and thought I was meant to be a businessman. But in college, I studied music and I studied computer science and I learned Japanese, um, which That's are good, all like... a good range of things. Uh, yeah, and maybe intentionally so. Like uh, music and, and programming, I think, have a lot of mental processes that are similar, but they're but it's certainly a left-brain, uh, left right-brain exchange. Yeah. But did you take like did you take consoles to university? Did you have like a, a gaming life in university, or did you dip out for a couple of years? Um, I, I I definitely had less time for it, but I did my my PS two uh, was the console for most of college for me. So um, if I'm going to time it along the Final Fantasy timeline, that's uh, Final Fantasy ten and ten two uh, described my university. And those um, are very solitary games, and usually you know, university is very much about you know meeting new people and rediscovering yourself and stuff. Did you find other people that play games, or was that just your your respite? Judging me, um, I'm not judging you at all. I'm just <laughs> um, I'm simply pointing that out. Yeah, no, it's fair. I had little to no social life around games in college. I did not find that community at all. Um, so games for me were mostly solitary and I, I had a, a big social life in college, but it was mostly around music. So I was an acapella nerd and oh, most of amazing. my friends surrounded that. Were you in an acapella band? I sure was. What were I they was, called? Uh, uh, the Clef Hangers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, 
It's one of my favourite things in the world is a cappella group steady. Um, I have oh, a man. real soft spot for them. You know how I said I'm bad at hobbies? Like, I I went off the deep end. I don't know if, <laughs> if, if anyone out there has seen uh, Pitch Perfect, the movie that's, like, about a cappella groups. Yeah, yeah, um, People kept recommending I watch that, and then I watched it, and I and I understood why they kept recommending it to me, because I was like, oh, I'm the bad guy in this movie. Like, <laughs> I'm the one who gets like who takes this way too seriously. Like I was the business manager and the music director at one point. I was like try I got us off Broadway gigs. I was trying to push us to do like tours. I was just so uh deep into it. I burned myself out over the course of 4 years. Oh my god. Um this is this is a whole other show, Teddy, but that that <laughs> is that like how but I'm going to take a brief detour into it just because like I'm I'm Let's a big go. fan of it. So how how competitive did it get? Like, is because I've seen obviously I've seen the Pitch Perfect movies, but there was a mm. reality TV show as well, and I cannot remember the name of it, which was off the back of the success of Pitch Perfect. I guess they just followed uh, several yeah. acapella teams from around the the US, and it, it seemed fiercely competitive. Is that your uh, memory of it? Absolutely, um, and I think that was compounded by the fact that I was in this sort of like. Um, although I loved all of them, uh, I'm attributing this to myself as well, like kind of a diva group. Like, um, we were these New York city kids who all had like particular different backgrounds in music. And a lot of us had training and like took it really seriously. Um, and especially being in New York city as an acapella group, you don't have the same sort of bubble that a lot of collegiate acapella has. Like, uh, a lot of acapella groups are a big deal on campus or at least a medium deal on campus. And we were not, uh, or it was hard to be in New York because you're competing against the entirety of entertainment in New York City. Um, and it's just a train ride away to go to proper Broadway or to go to a club or, or something downtown. So there's just so much available. So we had no monopoly on people's time. Um, but yeah, super competitive, like both from auditioning people and trying to get the best the best candidates to, to join your group every fall to the um the like championships the um what were they called the like intercollegiate acapella something um <laughs> that's amazing and did you uh, did you win any did you ever get close we got close i think we got to like semifinals once there's like a series of these so there's a quarterfinals and then like a couple months later there's a semi and then a finals um we did not like get into the the tournament but we thought we were great um <laughs> And do you still it's, like? Do you still do that? Because like, surely that's uh, that that experience. Like I was in a I was in a band for many years, like through through mm. uh, before university actually, and like that kind of I'm always kind of itching for that feeling of being in a in a gang with people and and making something from nothing. You know, it's a really uh, addictive thing. I find. Yeah, I mean, I think I mostly switched that over to games when I when I did. Um, I've been involved in surprisingly few bands considering how much I invested in music like I trained I took lessons in singing for 10 years I'm like very uh for a long time in my early games career singing remained like the one thing I felt like I was actually good at as a craft um and even now I feel like such a generalist maybe that's because I'm I've gone director but like I um I feel like such a broad skill set that even then it's like my one thing where I'm like oh I feel like I'm pretty good at that that one skill that's where it is. I'm fascinated. Like, have you ever thought about setting up like a like a Square Enix acapella group? 
<laughs> no. No, that I would am... be such a hit on the internet. Uh, I'm so force forcefully retired from acapella. I can't tell you. Like, <laughs> does it bring I, out I just... your, your your bad side? It does. It, uh, <laughs> I love I love the idea of harmonizing with people. I think that I burned out on acapella and the the dramas that that go behind it, um, because inherently there's this tension that you, that I don't think you get from a regular band. I mean, I'm sure there there are plenty of tensions in traditional bands, but um, an acapella group is is a group of full of singers where everyone has the same role, and so there is this whole drama around solos, which is is probably played up in Pitch Perfect and in um, shows like Glee and stuff. Like, uh, who gets the solos? Who is the star? Like, everyone who's a singer is is to some degree a diva. That's like part of the, I don't know. It's part of the role, as you expect to be like singing the words and and uh, kind of leading the band. So there's a lot of there's a lot of drama there. I choose to avoid this this age. I, I, with with this background in mind, like, what is your relationship like with with singing games? Is stuff like like SingStar or Rock Band or something? Mm, um, <laughs> you've answered that right away with that that one sound. <laughs> no, um, I I played a lot of Rock Band. Um, I I won a tournament in Rock Band in New York, um, which is not something I'll. I'll say again in my life. Um, I'm very boast. impressed by that. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Rock Band. It's probably my most played game. Oh yeah, I got really into it because I was I used to be a drummer as well when I was in grade school. So it's the drumming a lot that of drums. did it for me. Yeah, like it yeah. essentially taught me how to drum. Like I can play, mm. I can I can drum now. So long as the the song is charted in the Rock Band chart, I'm and the drums are color coded. I'm pretty sure I could I could drum to <laughs> most things. Uh, I mean, that's great. Like that was, uh, I think the big news, at least amongst designers when rock band came out was that the drums had them the closest thing to a one-to-one -one, where like you could get good at guitar and guitar hero, or you could get good at singing and in, in sing star or something. And it doesn't actually make you a good one of those. And the same is true with drums, but to a much smaller degree. So um, I'm taking a massive aside, but let's go back to the video games. Mm. So, so how, you know, you, you've done university and you've got the, this job. Like, how do you kind of navigate back towards game design? Or, like, what was the thing that made you think, maybe I could do this? Um, I came about it really roundabout. So I, uh, I was working in advertising, but then I got really deep back into games. I still didn't have a community of people who loved games in my life in New York, but I, like read every article published on Kotaku. I got really invested in that. I started writing like a a game review slash satire blog that I think I've buried uh, okay. at this point. But um think eventually that's just like disposable income and stuff. You've got you've got time, you've got money. Let's get back into video games seriously. Um it was maybe it was disposable time because I was I had a lot of free time at my job for some reason. Maybe I was like I kept getting my tasks done quickly, so like my lunch breaks were spent reading Kotaku. But um, no, I, I I tried to get a games job, and I did, and I got a job with Gameloft in New York, and I didn't like it, and I didn't enjoy that experience. And then um, I decided I wanted to be a designer, and I told them that I had moved sideways, so I went from advertising to advertising inside of this company, marketing inside of Gameloft. That was my that was my in into yeah. video games. And then I told them I want to be a designer. It's what I want to do. And I started spending time with the design team, and they let me sit on sit on their meetings. And I took a test, and they were like, "Great, 
this is cool, but we don't have a position open for a designer. And then eventually uh, I made my case so strongly that they fired me because they were like, because <laughs> they were like, well, he clearly doesn't want the job he has. Um, and I was, you know, I think I was performing fine, but uh, yeah, I got fired, which was great because I decided I was done with games uh, and that I wanted to make television. And so I had in the final months of my job there applied to the big four film schools in the U.S. and serendipitously got into USC, uh, University of Southern California. And uh, so getting fired was kind of like the opportunity I needed to to move. You really um, do go all in, Teddy. I, <laughs> it's, yeah, for better or for worse. Um, so the, the story is almost over. Um, so I had decided I wanted to do film and that was inspired, or TV, and that was inspired by watching a lot of television that was really, like really hit me for some reason. Um, Oh, it's Golden Age and, TV. <laughs> um, yeah, it really was. Like, um, yeah, no, I wasn't joking. Like, it really is. Like, I think it still is at the moment. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, uh, and maybe this makes me like, I don't know if this makes me layman or something, but like the the big serialized like um, genre shows that were out at that time, like um, Lost and uh, Battlestar Galactica, the remake is like. When people say, what's the game that made you want to get into games? Like, I could say Final Fantasy VII, but in truth, the thing that pushed me over the edge was Battlestar as a show, was the thing that made me feel like I want to make, I want to collaborate with people to make something that is better than I could make on my own and to make each other better until I create something. And so that sent me to film school. And then uh, shortly thereafter, I kind of realized my medium and my understanding was in games, but, but it was TV that got me there. That's that's amazing, and we, I'll come back to the the game, the sort of life in in Southern California. But I'm going to take a brief aside to do some relatively quick fire questions, Teddy. So, okay. if you had to uh, play a game with death for your own mortal soul, what game are you best at? Hmm. Um, Smash Brothers. Uh, my my NES game is really strong, so probably Smash. Any particular version? Uh, I would probably go Melee, or I could go Smash for the Wii U, Smash Four. Um, on on that tip, I guess, like, are you a, a particularly competitive video game player? Have you ever been locked in a, a high score battle or a, a rivalry with someone? Um, I used to play this game with my siblings, where we would play Duck Hunt for the Nintendo, uh, which I kept plugged in for most of my childhood. Um, and we would play first one to miss is out of the family. <laughs> <laughs> so we're all really good at duck hunt. <laughs> hey, how on earth did you enforce that? Uh, you know, shunning. <laughs> Everybody else up, no, you're out of the family. We've all decided. Classic shun. Yeah. <laughs> you wrote it on a piece of paper. It's a contract out of the family. Yeah, um, I, yeah I, I take it back. I would play death in duck hunt, which is ironic because <laughs> you're killing ducks. Um. Uh, has there ever been a game that's kind of uh, consumed your life to the point where it became a problem and you had to uninstall it or get rid of it? Um, I, I, I had like one dip in this that doesn't even really count, but I, my one experience deep with an MMO was that my brother bought Star Wars Galaxies and didn't like it and gave it to me. And then I played it and I think I played it for 24 hours straight and then I never touched it again. I was like, I can't, I can't do this. <laughs> This is bad. <laughs> yeah, no, it, I, I, I've purposefully kind of steered clear of most MMOs for that exact reason. 
And I'm sure mm. I'd have a good time. I just don't think I could handle the guilt afterwards. <laughs> um, that's that's the killer. Um, is there a, a game that kind of... Uh, do you have like a chicken soup game, a game that you'll kind of go back to or a game that has helped you through a particularly tough time? I don't. And I was just talking about this uh, on Twitter where, where it doesn't matter. But um, I, I wish that I did. I wish that I had a game I went back to. I'm really bad. Uh, I've tried to get a lot better at consuming media as a creator. Like I put so much... Uh, sort of obsession into being productive and getting my work done that it takes effort to play games and even more to play the same thing over and over. It's something I've I've gotten out of habit of and something that's very important for understanding something deeply. So like I learned a lot about game design from Smash Brothers and playing it over and over and over. But um, I'm, I've been watching more Let's Plays recently. Like I watched a lot of the speed runs of like Final Fantasy VII and, and Earthbound lately because that's my... That's like my adult way of trying to replay those games that yeah. I otherwise don't want to play over and over. I think that's a that's a that's a great way of doing it. Like I, I find myself doing that uh, a lot more as well. Um, and th- there is something quite, especially games like that, like big RPGs and stuff. It's quite it's, it's very comforting kind of watch, you know. Mm. Um, I, well, I, I start. I ended up starting a charity organization around replaying Final Fantasies. Um, that is sort of my yearly chicken soup now. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. The 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 what's it called? The the, uh, the square bowl. The square bowl, yeah. Which um, is yeah, it's just my excuse to play. Uh, my friend Adriel Wallach and I started it as a way to play a Final Fantasy game over the course of a weekend. Adriel Adriel was on the show last year, I believe, or the year before. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, that that's amazing. And is that kind of where did that did that come from? A place of I really like to replay this. Let's make it into a thing. Yeah, uh, the first time it was because Adriel and I had forged like a really close friendship and she was in Los Angeles visiting uh, um, and I was like, do you want to just play Final Fantasy VII all weekend? And she was like, yeah. So we streamed it. We didn't even actually do it for charity the first the first time because we didn't think it was a, a thing worth doing or that anyone would care. Um, and uh, the community ended up forming around it. But it was really just... Um, a, a way to replay Final Fantasy and a way to recapture those like childhood slumber parties, sleepovers that I used to do with video games. Um, I've been thinking about that a lot recently. The like the the thrill of a sleepover as a kid so that you just you don't mm. have anymore. I've, I've ne- and I don't really like. I'm, I don't think I'm gonna. I'm, I, I don't think I'm going to invite my friends, and I don't think they want <laughs> to come over for a sleepover. But there was something. It's, like, it's, it's such an exciting uh, thing, you know. There's there's like no more joyous moment I've had. Um, well, that, that's not true, but few as joyful as like um, taking some of the naps that I've learned I have to take during that marathon, um, waking up and coming back out into the, to the living room of wherever we are, and like all of my closest friends are playing one of my favorite games. Like it's just <laughs> like this. I live alone, so I don't have that experience of like waking up to social social experience. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. to walk to walk out and it's like it's like this weird dream, you know? It's like oh, welcome, like. We're glad you're up. We're playing Final Fantasy VII, and like, here's some coffee and a tea cake. Oh, that does sound amazing. So you do have your chicken soup game. That is your chicken soup games, clearly. I suppose so. Yeah. Um, given the kind of the the range of uh, emotions that that video games uh, are able to convey, one of the rarest uh, is, is laughter. So Teddy, what games have really made you laugh? Hmm. Um. I. Like two things come to mind. I'm not like a like a, a laugh out loud. Um, I laugh at like the, the I laugh at genius sometimes. Like I will 
be very amused by something that I think is is so clever. Um, and so like that happens to me. Most recently, that happened to me with Quadrilateral Cowboy, which uh, my good friend Brendan Chung made. Um, and I will like laugh at something that I just think is so smart. You know, it's like yeah. I feel had. I feel like oh, I can't put like as a as a game maker and as a player, I just feel like completely had. You're so you got me. It's like uh, being pranked with genius. I I know that exact feeling. Yeah. The, the, um, the, the one actually the, the the one that always gets me and it's such a silly little thing but it just oh is it's the incredibles you know the pixar movie the incredibles uh-huh. and there's a bit where uh, dash he's just like run run as fast as you can he's running away from something and uh then he stops and he looks down and he realizes he's yeah. actually running on the sea and he does yeah. this little giggle and, oh god that gets me every time it's such a beautiful little piece of, of story and kind of develop oh it's amazing it's so beautifully downplayed. Like, yeah, yeah. They they don't. Uh, he doesn't say anything. It's not a thing he's always wanted to do. It just happens, and you see this like this uh, self wonder. Yeah. Um, I got a good. This is a, a darker, weirder one, but I I remember having a good laugh in Heavy Rain. Okay. Um, because uh, I got confused, and it was like it was not humor coming from the game. It was humor coming from my engagement with it because. There's some point where you're interrogating some character and you've got a gun on them, and you know the the UI for Heavy Rain is that all these options will kind of float around in in 3D space yeah. uh, with buttons mapped to them. And I tried to like ask him to calm down, but instead I pressed the shoot him in the head button. <laughs> um, and I'm not like a huge like I don't like uh, gun games that much, and I'm not I, I try to push away from from violence in most cases, but um. That was really funny to me, like because there's such a disparity between what I was trying to do and what happened. It was like uh, slapstick humor in heavy rain, because <laughs> it completely diffused the situation. Incredibly tense, and I was like, "Oh, how am I gonna get this guy? To, how am I gonna get this guy?" And then I shot him, and it was like something right out of Pineapple Express. And the character kind of sheep- sheepishly backs out of the frame, like, oh, "Didn't mean to do that." <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I realized I missed one, but I think we've already covered it earlier. But uh, if you are prone to such things, Teddy, uh, what was your worst rage quit? Ooh, um, uh, Time Splitters 2. Okay. Um, they had, like, it was probably the last shooter that I played a lot of because that was right before Halo introduced online play. Yeah. Um, Time Splitters 2 was the last game where bots was, like, your primary opponent. So you'd play these big multiplayer matches with your friends against, sometimes against them, but also with bots. Um, and Time Splitters 2, you could have these like matches of like 20-some bots, and it was just completely joyous. But they had these challenges. They had like a challenge mode that was there um, as bon- as extra content and also as a way to unlock a lot of the bonus characters. And like there were a couple... There was this mode um, where flaming zombies were attacking you. Yep. And you had to keep killing them for as long as possible. And, you know once one of them touches you, you're on fire and then you just have to watch yourself slowly die because there are a few ways to put out fire. So I remember this one challenge I don't think I ever beat, which is you're in the middle of a a ring, the center ring of a circus tent and the zombies are coming from all sides and it's just so brutal. I I rage quit that one for the rest of my life. I I remember that very distinctly. That was one of my my big university games was Time Splitters 2. And yeah, those challenges, mm. like spending weekends just passing controllers around and trying to beat those challenges. I think on my own, I never would have done it. 
And so, so like in terms of just specific games, I suppose, like are there games that stand out um, maybe over the past sort of 10 years or so that kind of changed how you felt about games or, or really kind of opened up what you thought they could be? Or... Ooh, I'm, I'm going to take 10 seconds on that one. I'm going to take That's the, fine. the actor's pause. Um, I think... Um, Things that have hit me hard recently, um, uh, my friend David O'Reilly made a game uh, that came out this year called Everything, mm-hmm. um, which I found uh, beautiful in that it like gave me a different perspective and worldview and a mode of thinking through like this philosopher that it centers around, um, and that it did it in in like four hours. Um, and I just like that juxtaposition of like um, fitting inside of my short attention span, but also like having a, a serious impact on me with a game that um, is largely explorative is something that that I, I love a lot about it. Um, and and it I, plays I think itself is one of my favorite things about everything that I can just allow mm-hmm. the system to run and just watch it do the things that it does and listen to it. I think there's something about that that i really like that's why final fantasy 12 is is my favorite because you can kind of allow the game to play mm, the gambit system yes um yeah I, I i think um i mean it's while you're tying it to final fantasy i think that my favorite thing about uh the the, the final fantasy 7 final fantasy 8 um mostly 7 is like is not the combat it's like the it's the towns. It's the walking around, talking to people, playing mini games. These sort of like um, systems light things, um, and it's uh, it's something that I'm kind of aspiring to in my current work. That that um, we didn't do as much in, in Hyperlight Drifter. Hyperlight Drifter is definitely a, a deep combat focused experience that has certainly has like a rich world that 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 I that Alex built out. But um, you know that's a combat game. Yeah. But what I love about what ev- about everything and about these towns and RPGs is it's like it's just a space I want to be in and like I think the c- combat stuff scratches an itch in my brain but really I just want to be in another place and be in like a um, meet meet different characters and experience a story like I'm I'm not a reader I read so few novels and I I wish I read more I I need to read more uh, as a, as a writer I read like an embarrassingly low amount of of books but I consume a lot of words through like um, through internet writing and through games. And like, that is just like where I, I grew up with stories. Oh, that, 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 this, this is like, um, obviously like a common thread between people I speak to about the kind of the, the way games sort of present themselves. And like, I've always kind of maintained that I don't, I, I don't really go to games for, for stories. Like I, I, I it's more to sort of film and TV theater there's very few games where the the story has really had an impact on me i suppose like is that different for you do you kind of get caught up in those stories in the same way you would a, a tv series or something huh. um i mean i do think that when i when i talk about a story in a game i'm also talking about a world yeah um and that's really the strength of storytelling in a lot of the RPGs that I loved and these sorts of things is that, um, and, and the reason why I rolled right out of, of television really quickly is that, 
any like spec script I wrote or thing that I was working on as a, a concept like blew blew up into like I I want to touch on more um, like I want to focus on this story but I, I want to be in this world and like as an experiencer of this I would rather walk around in it than anything else and um, you know I can't really speak to the psychology of that exactly but just to say that um, that's part of this story experience for me um, at least in what I what I enjoy the most. Oh, absolutely! Like I think that is the the biggest part of it, and it's just it's that I think a lot of the kind of the the the, the debate around around this fall fails at, at the the language side of it, you know, as opposed to like there, there aren't sufficient words to describe the, this kind of experiences you can get from games, like the exploration side of it, and how that can feed into story, or how you know just the, the general idea of what is a game you know there's a lot of, there's an endless amount of discussion about like whether or not something like virginia for instance is a game because you what are you doing but then it's not i just don't think there's sufficient language yet i don't think we've really codified the, the terms properly so i i went you know i did my master's work at a grad school that was a games program that was born out of a film school okay. so the the dialogue around storytelling and games um, in its most academic is something that I was like oversaturated with for three years. Um, and Am I, I, I just think, totally I think, wrong then? Is that me just... No, being, no, 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 no. I think, I think from like a, a, criti- a criticism point of view and from the fans' point of view and like as a community of consumers of games, I agree with you. Like we're missing a lot of terminology. We're missing um, a way to talk about these things that helps us understand them better. Yeah. But, but as a game maker the the approach and the attitude I take towards um, conversations around storytelling and games and are games meant to tell stories and et cetera, et cetera, is that um, that's not actually the conversation that happens in the creative room. Like uh, um, my friend Scott Benson, who uh, made a game called Night in the Woods, which everyone should play, mm-hmm. uh, and is a very st- story-focused game, and he himself comes from animation. Um, he feels that question a lot from like, you know, the darkest corners of internet comments, which is like, why is this a game? It's yeah. not, it's just reading or whatever. Um, and the, the way that he's put it publicly and to me is, is something I agree strongly with, which is like, that's not how we think about it. It's not how anyone who makes something thinks about it. You don't have a concept for a story or a world and then you sit down and you think, what medium should this be in? Chances are you just have a medium that you work in or a medium that you want to explore or something, or you have a skill, you know? Um, and some skills are more fluid, like, uh, writing can be applied to a lot of things, but even writing is, is medium specific in terms of its strengths, um, as a skill. And so you just have an idea and you make it in a genre and it impacts it a little bit, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to justify that it must have been in that medium, um, that like night in the woods had to be a game or that even, uh, I don't know, Hyperlight drifter had to be a game. Nothing has to be anything. It's just what it ends up being. It's expression. And so to me, games that tell stories, like maybe sometimes they're confused or maybe sometimes like there are there are those creators who maybe wanted to make film, but they know how to speak the language of games. So that's what they make. But that uh, whatever that mutant child is, is, is still beautiful to me. <laughs> I think I think that's a, an actually a, a brilliant way of, put, of putting it. I've not really heard that discussed much and and yeah the the, the it is like i met edge magazine you know you know edge magazine 
mm-hmm. like that always had as the kind of the the banner on the front of the magazine is always the future of electronic entertainment which i thought mm-hmm. was at least you know at least they're they're op- it's open to the possibility it's not just games it's not just rules it's just a, a form of electronic entertainment and that can take myriad forms and i'm sure it'll get even more complicated the the further we go and the the more technology becomes available yeah yeah i mean i um you know i think virginia is a beautiful thing that in a lot of formal definitions of a game is not a game but i don't care like and i'm going to call it a game because that's the shorthand for it exactly exactly um so how was the kind of the the journey into sort of game design like did you feel like everyone's going to feel a certain amount of, of imposter syndrome but did it kind of hook you in the way that you 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 expected it to like was it what you you had thought um yes like i i think by the time that i came around to really coming back from going towards television and then coming back to games um i it, it felt really natural to me and like working quasi professionally or at least in in academia and having these like like i was in film school and I had never seen Citizen Kane, and that is like a dark, dark secret to keep when you're <laughs> when you're surrounded by film students. It's like, I haven't seen this. I haven't seen The Graduate. Like, I just haven't done the work. It's not a, wasn't a part of my um, of my growth as like a kid. Yeah. Um, but but when I went into games, I was like, oh, I have this language already. This is like, it felt like cheating. It felt like I I put the cheat code in Chippendales Rescue Rangers and. <laughs> I have this huge library of reference already and it's um, it takes work to keep updating that library. Um, you know, I think that's an important thing for any creator, but, but starting off in it, yeah, like game design, game experience design, um, what, I had all these points of reference to go off of and it felt much more of an easy transition for me. And are you still kind of excited about games in, in that sort of same way? Are you, are you very kind of optimistic and excited about the future of games? Uh, oh yeah. I mean, I, I get a little tired sometimes. Uh, it's exhausting process making games. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, that, that's a whole different question, but, but as a medium, yeah, like I'm, I love everything that's coming out right now. I love the, the increasing diversity of voices that are coming up and I'm doing what I can to try and promote those voices because I think that's good for, for our medium. Um, I like the weird experiments people are doing, like the stranger things that are coming out. I like the things that aren't considered games. Um, I, I think it's an incredible time to be in it. Like I, it has changed the way I play games. My to-do list currently, my sorry, my to-play list um, is currently categorized by reference category. Like these are the games I need to play for reference for my own work, and uh, that's just the the sad truth of it. Like I played. Um, what Remains of Edith Finch, which is a beautiful game. Um, another one that's that's told in about two hours. Um, it's just incredible. And and the consequence of being a game maker is that I was blown away by it and also sent into like a, a horrible existential crisis about my own work for <laughs> for a few hours. I pulled out of it, but like that's the downside of being critical about a medium that you enjoy as a as a fan as well. Um, that that's like um, that's very glad to hear. Like, where do you do you go anywhere specifically to to find new games, or do you just kind of um, skim from Twitter? I, um, as a person who keeps lists and uh, is like very um, 
uh, a work hard person. Um, I used to be way more proactive about this with like games that were coming out and the game festivals that were coming up. Um, I think that uh, whether because I'm limited in time or because I'm uh, like privileged to be pretty embedded in the game making community, I I can normally just depend on word of mouth for everything from new game releases to uh, like when when the next festivals are happening. It is amazing, like the the way how quickly that's become normal. The way that we kind of consume not 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 just even in games, just in general. Like mm. I go to Twitter, and that's how I find out about pretty much everything. Like going on in the world in every aspect of my interest like it's it's crazy how just that's normal now it's um yeah it's i I think that because it's systematized formally because it's like there are algorithms in twitter telling you here's what you missed or facebook pushing things to the top of your your feed like there's a lot of conversation happening especially in the realm of politics but also in in entertainment about uh, it all being a positive feedback loop, as we would put it in game design, like a self-selective system that is figuring out what you like and then only showing you those same sorts of things. And it, um, on one hand, it's really scary, and I, I don't have a personal solution for that that feeling that I'm just being fed um, what the internet wants me to see. But but I also think that's a dynamic of of like human interaction in general. Is yeah. that you know we're just noticing it more because someone had to write it in code, but you spend time with the people who share your values and your interests. And that's just like, you do what you can to get outside of your bubble to, to create perspective. But we're all, we're all victims of a little bit of uh, perspective bias. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the path of least resistance always. Um, mm-hmm. Is there like, uh, just in terms of, of, of games of finish up, um, is there any kind of specific game or game experience that kind of hasn't come up yet that you wanted to, to mention? Yeah, I think um, you know something that uh, that maybe was not as transparent in the the games we've talked about in the RPGs and the Final Fantasies, but something that I love about uh, indie games and smaller teams uh, is transparency of authorship. Um, not to necessarily push forward this idea of like one auteur whose vision go- gets. Um, played forward. I think that games are a collaborative medium, but the smaller the team, the more singular that voice or the more cohesive that voice. Absolutely. So like, so games, like games that really speak to me are the ones that like, you can really see the creator behind them. So like I've mentioned um, Brendan Chung and like the way he thinks and his humor and stuff comes really clearly through Quadrilateral Cowboy and, and 30 Flights of Loving. Um, but one of my favorite games as well and a big influence on me is Catherine. Um, which is uh, a triple-A game. It was PlayStation 3 mm-hmm. by, the, by the Persona team, right? And it's a game um, that has some of the trappings of an RPG, but is a smaller scoped game. And there is a... Um, it is a game about... It's, it's a game about infidelity, and it's a game about a, a guy in his early 30s who clearly does not have it together and, and um, doesn't know what he wants and is trying to figure it out. But, but like, tonally, it's a game about dudes being shitty and feeling guilty about it and feeling like pressured by the constraints of their lives to to both not do the things they're doing but also they kind of feel pushed into the circumstances they get themselves into and like uh in some ways it can feel at first problematic you're like there's all these men doing really horrible things and and treating women unfairly um but i love that game because there's a clear voice behind it and yeah. 
when you read the dialogue that some of these characters are talking about with like the things they've done or the situation they're in and the powerlessness they feel like it's clear to me that someone someone behind that like had been through these experiences and um was writing was writing very personally and like very you know writing what they know as the adage goes so uh that usually happens on smaller teams but of course it's it can happen at any any level if people are given um given agency to make that so Catherine is my my example of a game that is transparent transparently pushing through an experience that a real human being had and that they want you to have as well yeah it's it's amazing and like and just listening to you describe that then um it's amazing to think that that that's it's not normal now but that's not as much of an outlier like 20 years ago there was nothing like that nothing even approaching that kind of level of yeah here's a personal expression and kind of that's one of the reasons why on on the show that i speak to mostly sort of independent developers is because there is because of that authorship you know i, I want to speak to people at the games that they've loved and kind of see if you can see the how those have impacted the games they've they've then gone on to create because I think it's fascinating, and it's it's only just really in the last five ten years we've been able to kind of have games with the fidelity to kind of put across those ideas, as well as the people really wanting to to share them. You know, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, the it it uh, it and it, it enables the dialogue between between work, between art, and between the people who consume it. That um, the more clearer voices, the more there is like something that's being said or perspective that's being given, and like. I think that's part of the maturity of of a medium that's young like ours is. Amazing. Um, I feel like we've covered all sorts of good stuff, Teddy. If there's anything that kind of hasn't come up, um, please do mention it. Or if you want to just tell people where they can find your games and stuff, please go ahead. Oh, sure. Um, uh, I will I will promote. I'll say uh, you can find me and interact with me on Twitter. That's where I exist most often on the internet. So I'm Teddy Deef, T-E-D-D-Y-D-I-E-F on Twitter. Um and then I would encourage you, if you please, to check out my two most recent games. Uh, Hyperlight Drifter, uh, which we've talked about at length, is available on Steam and PS4 and Xbox One. Um, and uh, a much smaller game, actually, I, I was lucky to make with Brendan Chung um, called Fitzpackerton. Is oh, available of course, on yes. H, um, which, oh, you've heard of it. That's always, Of course. Uh, I have no idea who's, who's heard of this, but it's a... Uh, it was made in in the course of a week, basically, and it's a, a very small collaboration, but something that like is a a rare exercise in scope for me, um, and and something that I feel pretty proud of. So, give it a try. It's free. Fitz Packerton. Cool. And um, was that okay for you, Teddy? Was that was that fun? Oh yeah, such a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, um, good, good. <laughs> What's this about? Quiet, bit boy. We'll ask the questions around here. Do you uh, have to talk into that thing? Word on the street is you got a new Nintendo 64 game coming out. Could you be a little more specific? We got a lot of new games coming out. <laughs> Star Fox 64. Test pilot boy. You want to know about Star Fox 64, eh? Uh, yeah, and you'd better tell us all you know. Or else. Or else what? 
or else Plumber Boy here gets it. <laughs> what are you guys doing with Mario? <laughs> no! Leave Mario out of this. <laughs>